Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash THW. This activity is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca. So, uh, uh, good morning to uh, everyone and uh, welcome to this uh, uh, CME Educational uh, Symposium which is titled Taking Action to Improve the Patient Journey with Transthyretin Amyloidosis, Shared Perspectives from Patients and Providers. So uh, I'm Laura Obici from the Amyloidosis Center in Pavia, and it's really my great pleasure to introduce the two colleagues with whom I will share this uh, session. Uh, Lucia Galan, Professor uh, of neurology at the Hospital San Carlos here in Madrid. She has long-lasting experience in transthyretin amyloidosis. And David Gregory. David Gregory is a well-known patient advocate. is uh, presently secretary of the UK Patients Association, one of the founder of the Amyloidosis Alliance, and is in the board of Amyloidosis Alliance. We will be discussing best practices to improve the patient journey uh, for patients with transthyretin amyloidosis with a particular focus on the diagnostic pathway. And uh, we will uh, explore uh, possible uh, collaborative strategies between patients and uh, physicians to achieve an early diagnosis. So uh, we can now start uh, with the first uh, session in which we will discuss uh, opportunities to optimize the patient's physician partnership. So uh, we would like to explore uh, in this first part the unmet needs in the identification and in the diagnosis of uh, transthyretin amyloidosis. And we will get both a, a patient and a physician uh, perspective. Before uh, we start, I just wanted to briefly uh, remind that we deal with two different types of transthyretin amyloidosis. The more uh, prevalent wild type uh, transthyretin amyloidosis, which is an increasingly recognized uh, cardiomyopathy, uh, non-hereditary, that affects mostly males for reasons that are still uh, unknown, uh, aged uh, over 60 years. And that's different from the hereditary transthyretin uh, amyloidosis, which is a, a less uh, frequent uh, disease, but it's characterized by uh, a, a significant systemic involvement. Uh, it's reported in the, in the right. We know that uh, virtually any tissue and organ can be involved in this uh, disease. So the clinical manifestations are quite heterogeneous, particularly at disease onset. And certainly this has a major role also in the difficulty in recognizing uh, this uh, disease. Certainly the biggest initial challenge for amyloidosis patients. It takes such a long time to get diagnosed. Certainly in my family's case, it, with my first, uh, well, first sister, my sister, she uh, took a considerable amount of time. So it's no, no surprise. And once it's in the family, obviously it kind of helps uh, if you can describe it as that. Uh, but certainly in the wild type uh, case, you know, definitely they're in the higher figure. Yeah. And actually, this is also reported in some uh, recent publications. This is one 
that uh, basically uh, made a literature review of the report in median or mid-diagnostic delays for the two different forms. And actually, as you can see, uh, the uh, weighted median and mean values uh, are uh, still uh, significantly high for both types with, uh, as you said, an increasing, uh, a higher diagnostic delay for uh, the wild-type TTR uh, amyloidosis, and we will uh, discuss that. So here we have a quote from uh, a patient that uh, mentioned exactly a, a three years delay with several medical encounters in which the disease was not even uh, suspected. So, uh, David, uh, what is uh, your uh, perspective, not only as a, a patient, but also as a patient's advocate representing many other people? Yes, uh, as a patient, uh, we've had hereditary amyloidosis um, and discussions with other patients, as you say, the length of time can mean the diagnose can come, come, come quite late. Um, and during that time, the disease is taking its toll, a considerable toll on you know, the body and what's going on there. You know, in my sister's case, it took four years uh, going through the whole hospital with all the different departments. Uh, my brother, who I knew had it two years before, he didn't want to get uh, um, diagnosed because he was working and he needed to uh, focus on that. But that two years, I would say, took uh, the toll on the amyloid situation. And the other part being an advocate, the wild type, uh, uh, population. We've had a number that have been misdiagnosed and been given a diagnosis of a heart issue, had all the drugs that go with it, which obviously do nothing, and uh, the complications uh, that go with that. If I may add, are you uh, having the feeling that something is improving, or uh, do you think uh, we are still on the same no, I think delays? You know, over the sort of five years I've uh, being diagnosed, I, I definitely get a better feeling that out there in the hospitals there's a greater awareness, particularly now that treatments are there. Before that, when there was no treatments, it was kind of uh, not uh, talked about so much, but yeah. it is better, but it is still a massive challenge. Yeah. So, Lucia, I have a slide for you because uh, uh, we, we, we say, as physicians, even when we make presentations, that uh, ATTR diagnosis remains uh, challenging. We heard about the definition by Claudia, great pretender. That's absolutely uh, true. So from your uh, perspective, uh, why it's difficult to diagnose TTR? Yes, this is a very important question, and, and I agree. I was thinking about this in the presentation in the tribute to Professor Rapetzi. Uh, the main problem with this disease is this. This is the great pretender. And as it is a multi-systemic disease, sometimes it's not so easy to think about this disease. And this was uh, the main point for, for Professor Rapetzi and the main point that passed through us. You should think about the disease in order to diagnose it. And uh, I think that uh, nowadays we tend to the practice a very compartmentalized uh, uh, medicine. So uh, this has to change. Uh, we have to think in a holistic uh, point of view. And we have to think about the other manifestations of, of the disease in order to, to diagnose it. And we need also to have this information from the patient. I think this is the, the other part that is really, really important. 
And then from the doctor uh, point of view, I would say that we are going to, to speak a lot about this during this morning, but we should not be afraid of asking for a genetic test as soon as we have the suspicion. Do you have the perceptions that the referral to your center have changed from different physicians in the past years or patients are still getting to your center through the same? No, they, they, it, it has changed a lot. I, I, it's true that we have, um, the, this education has um, had a very important impact in, in doctors of other specialties. And it is very, I, I agree with you, it is very important that other specialists is the main one here in the room because uh, a lot of different doctors are now aware of this disease. And this, um, this makes that we do have patients in earlier stages. So I think this is something that uh, has been useful in the past years while discussing with neurologists or cardiologists. For example, the idea that many patients with hereditary TTR amyloidosis with polyneuropathy could be misdiagnosed with another neuropathy, which is called chronic demyelinating polyneuropathy, because actually that could be possible. But the idea that uh, uh, the neuropathy in TTR amyloidosis is much more rapidly progressive should raise the suspicion in the physicians. And we had a lot of neurologists that reconsidered their diagnosis based on this. So I, I think this, uh, from uh, a methodological perspective, is, is very, it's very useful. So another point that uh, I think it's increasingly important, uh, we always talk about that, but I would like to have your thought on uh, why, which is your feeling about uh, the time problem, because we always say time is key, and it's true. I think both physicians and patients now have this perception that time to diagnosis is really a key issue. So I would like to go a little bit more on in depth on this and uh, asking uh, David, uh, what is the patient's perspective on the uh, role of time? I think it's uh, worth keep coming back to my own um, sort of journey with the family and uh, seeing my sister deteriorate when there was nothing available or very little apart from dealing with her actual um, uh, key uh, issues. And then a brother who's also in that same situation, you know, spreading through the body every moment. It goes around the body, the amyloid, and, uh, you know, cocks up the system. And, um, you know, once it's done that, it doesn't go back. So it's so important that we, uh, you know, get that quality of life thing um, sort of sorted with regards to myself I'm at the other end of the spectrum unfortunately I'm younger obviously younger than my brother and sister and I've been uh, fortunate to have the available uh, support treatments that are available now so I, you know, I'm at a very early stage so I've had the whole spectrum of seeing you know what you can do and also now seeing what it's not doing Lucia, do you want to add from the physician? Yes, <laughs> from the physician point of view, I would say, uh, again, it is really important. We do know this because I would say two phases. The ethiopathological phase, we do know that the, star, uh, the disease uh, starts much earlier than the symptoms. So uh, we do know that because it has been a study. But we also do know that uh, practically, 
and uh, we cannot discuss treatment, but I wanted to say a little bit about the clinical trials. All clinical trials, when we look to the placebo arm, that is very interesting to always look to the placebo arm of a clinical study, uh, when they do the switch to the treatment, patients go better, but never to the same level that the patients that were treated from the very beginning. So we do know that in, that in this disease, uh, that we do not have, unfortunately, uh, a cure for the disease, but we do have disease-modifying therapies, the earlier you diagnose and the earlier you treat, the better the prognosis. Yeah, if I may add a comment, even without discussing specific treatments, I think from the physician's perspective, we would like to enter in the future a preventive treatment. So this is our approach. I think everyone, when we meet patients uh, and uh, at risk for the hereditary form uh, carriers, uh, we are thinking really when we can start the treatment, even with the risk of uh, make the person feeling sicker before in a way, but I think uh, this is our goal nowadays. Of course, we have to remain in the indication of the drug, on the evidence, which is quite important. There is a huge effort on identification of biomarkers for this disease that may allow us to uh, define the presence of amyloid and tissue-related damage uh, to this deposition really earlier. And hopefully this will be our future. So... Uh, we have uh, long discussing, I think red flags have been useful to discuss and to present this disease uh, uh, to uh, many other medical uh, communities. Uh, these were published only a few uh, years ago in an expert uh, panel uh, recommendation. Do you think these are uh, still uh, valuable? How uh, useful are, in your perspective, the red flags for ATTR polyneuropathy nowadays? Well, uh, I want to start saying that this was fantastic work that has evolved a lot. And from the very beginning, from the first paper of uh, Isabel Gonsaisan, and then the reviews of the red flags have, have been very interesting. But uh, nowadays, probably we have to rethink a little bit this with the new um, knowledge of the importance of the orthopedic um, manifestations that are very early. And on the other hand, I would say that we have to, especially it, the, the main point is to, to have the suspicion of the disease. Uh, and this uh, would be mainly for two points. I would say that is a multi-systemic uh, disease and the progression, as, as you say. So probably these two are the main and the dysautonomia for the polyneuropathy. These two are the main. <clears throat> and that's why I would say, at least in Spain, uh, the majority of the neurologists, uh, if they do have a patient with a neuropathy and they do not know the, the cause of the disease, uh, they will advance to the suspicion of the disease and the genetic test. Uh, and when you go back, and, and this has been published very recently by the, the group of Adams, the majority of the patients that they have the, the genetic test positive, they do have red flags. So the red flags are useful. But probably if you want to be a little bit fast, that we want to, maybe it's, it's useful to think of the disease uh, as soon as, as possible and to ask for the, the, for the test. Yeah, so I've got a question for you. <laughs> um, what more can be done to make diagnosis of ATTR polyneuropathy quicker? 
question is entering by the neuropathy uh, door, I would say. The uh, genetic test, it is really, really important in order not to delay the diagnosis. I would say that it's also important to have the demonstration of the deposit. Uh, it could be uh, by biopsy or by the bone scintigraphy, but you shouldn't delay the diagnosis or, you or even more importantly, you shouldn't delay the treatment if you are not able to find uh, the deposition in a patient with a typical uh, clinical, um, clinical picture and the test positive and no other possible causes for the disease. Yeah. And then after that, to ask for the genetic test, uh, even in patients that we do think that they don't have red, red flags because probably they will have the red flags that sometimes we do not ask properly or they don't talk about this. So, so now I <laughs> thank you back at your question and I wanted to ask you from the cardiological point of view, how, is, how useful are these red flags, we could say, or these key sign of symptoms and how useful is the actual pathway that we do have uh, today to diagnose our patients? So uh, actually, I'm not a cardiologist, but uh, I think it's an important point. The uh, awareness of the disease is significantly improved in the cardiological community, thanks also to the availability of uh, treatments. And uh, apart from the pure cardiac features uh, on imaging, uh, I think uh, uh, we have uh, often discussed with cardiologists the importance of extra cardiac manifestations. So. In Italy, we have a significant uh, number of genetic variants that uh, are uh, presenting with cardiac features first, and uh, it has been really useful to discuss with them to look for autonomic dysfunction, to look for neurological manifestation, to think about the uh, hereditary. So yes, I think uh, uh, mentioning this systemic manifestation is important to increase the awareness of the hereditary form among cardiologists that are more uh, now prompt to suspect wild-type TTR uh, amyloidosis than the hereditary one. And as you mentioned, I think the musculoskeletal manifestations, and there are nice publications showing how these uh, patients' populations with uh, orthopedic uh, manifestations can be uh, really subgroups of individuals in which we can try to develop screening programs uh, to monitor the risk of uh, onset of cardiomyopathy or check if they have these uh, uh, events in their medical history for uh, cardiac amyloidosis. And this goes to the possibility to diagnose, it was largely discussed yesterday, uh, ATTR amyloidosis with a non-invasive approach, which is extremely useful and feasible for the large majority of these patients, fortunately. And uh, I'm not going into much detail about that. Uh, uh, physicians are uh, now uh, absolutely aware. And uh, th this was really a, a very important collaborative effort to develop this uh, algorithm. It changed a lot in the approach. What I think is the most important part now of this algorithm is the final part because we are all quite aware of the relevance of uh, positive DPD scan in the absence of uh, evidence of uh, plasma cell dyscrasia. Laura, I've got a question again. Non-invasion diagnosis has improved recognition of ATTR. What more now needs to be done? 
But what is still a, a point for physicians is the relevance of performing genetic testing when you have a diagnosis of transthyretin amyloidosis thanks to this approach. Because we have a lot of individuals that actually present as a wild-type TTR amyloidosis but carry a, a mutation. And there are increasing publications from the UK group, from the Madrid group. We also have an experience under a publication showing that up to 20% of patients can actually be um, a carrier of a mutation. So they have an hereditary form, not a wild type form. And the large majority of these are aged people. And some very often still cardiologists argue against the genetic testing in relatively old people. So this is a strong message we are trying to introduced based on these evidences on the relevance of performing genetic testing in any case, because this has huge implications for therapeutic approaches and for uh, family screening. As I said, I think we have to move more to uh, other physicians' uh, communities. One is orthopedics. I think they may have a role and get uh, involved in this uh, disease. Uh, also providing tissues on which we can perform uh, search for amyloid deposition very early. We used to recommend uh, all carriers that develop uh, um, carpal tunnel syndrome and they get uh, treated to uh, make us contact the orthopedic and get the tissue because this can be useful to prove amyloid deposition and, uh, of course, also for research purposes uh, in the future if uh, a patient is willing to. And the other is the role of general practitioners. I mean, it's very controversial, it's very difficult depending on the different uh, um, ex regional uh, experiences, but I think uh, this is my experience in many meetings with general practitioners. They have uh, uh, understood that they may be relevant to combine the uh, significant aspects of the medical history of the people, and they are prompt now to ask also for a scintigraphy. We have some good experiences in some centers and some regions in Italy. So I think we have to look more for these uh, uh, colleagues because I think they may play a major role in anticipating recognition. We have to move to the second part of this uh, discussion. So here I would like to uh, explore how we can um, collaborate more between physicians and uh, patients uh, to improve not only the uh, patient's journey to diagnosis, but also the patient's journey in the management uh, of uh, the disease. So, uh, David, you have been involved uh, as a, a patient advocate in developing a white paper on this. So would you like, please, to provide us some key messages? Yeah, something that was produced uh, a couple of years ago, and it was um, we talked about it yesterday in the patient meeting. We were doing something in the other group, by the way, um, and this is one of the areas we talked about. And it, it's, it's called shared decision-making process, uh, whereby patients work together in equal partnership with doctors, and that, which is uh, something that some doctors might feel is a challenge and others will hopefully take on board. You know, that does include the treatments, the trials, the education and support. And uh, the challenge is to get doctors to buy into uh, this. It's something that's been talked about all around the world in different formats. Um, and it's something that will definitely help the patient and the doctor move, uh, you know, this uh, disease forward. Um, 
We also talk to, you know, we'll help patients also to better understand the disease because, you know, it's about educating us and how we become a bit of an expert of the uh, disease. Um, and uh, that's something, you know, we, we talked about. Uh, Mind the Gap paper, which was also uh, mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about early diagnosis as the key element, but then there's points about having uh, equitable access to treatment. Uh, you know, different com countries um, have different things, as we all, you know, you've been talking about as well. Um, you know, is there genetic, genetic testing the same everywhere? No, but it's something we need to be working with. Um, we talked about caregivers yesterday. We had a really powerful uh, session. I, know, I thought I'd mention it. We had three um, uh, patients, sorry, caregivers talking about their journey. One of the husbands had passed away and two of them, um, well, you're here now, aren't you? So that's good news. Um, but uh, it was really powerful and it got, you know, there was a light bulb moment for me that uh, sometimes the caregivers, you know, we're all focused on the patient and taking everything in and the caregivers on the left or right. And, uh, you know, their challenges are actually double what the patient's uh, going through because they're dealing with all the patient's uh, stuff that's going on. Uh, and they start to have issues and uh, challenges that are uh, really, uh, you know, quite um, something that I think we need to raise a lot more with um, going forward. I think uh, this uh, uh, aspect of the emotional well-being and uh, mental health and psychological support is uh, very important. So do you want to comment on that? You know, it starts with the, getting the uh, diagnosis and then the treatment and then we have the additional things popping up as well. So yeah, they're all important and they're all different from person to person and country to country, I guess. Yeah, uh, I, from my perspective, I would say, at least in Spain, um, the access to treatment is not so bad. I can understand that for the patients and family, this is a main point and probably it's uh, the same that for us, the diagnosis never is too early. So in Spain, at least, and I, I think that probably in other countries also, mental health and social financial support are lacking. And we have to convince our um, authorities that this is really important for the health, not just for the general life, but also for the health, because uh, it is really difficult to include this, um, for example, uh, psychological care in the uh, multidisciplinary teams that should and even most di more difficult to include the social support and it's really important for the quality of life of patients but also for the health because this is going to impact how the the patient feels so i, I think that this it, we have we have improved a lot in different things but in this field we have a, a field to work a lot yeah what uh, you think can be done together? Yeah, I think uh, as uh, patients uh, have been diagnosed, then there's patient advocates and physicians. You know, we do really need to guide them early on, especially in the early days, where it's, you know, they can't even say amyloidosis, let alone what's uh, involved with it. Uh, we need to give them information where to go that's relevant and up to date. Um, you know, about what, you know, what they've got. We want to kind of educate them to help you with the symptoms because we don't, we really, you know, we pick three or four things that are happening now and not the 10 other things that have happened 
uh, previously, and you need to know all that uh, information. So we want to get that, uh, um, you know, something that's really aware to people. Patient organizations like, like uh, us have an important role to play in setting up um, the support mechanisms. Some countries, you know, in the Amyloid Alliance are very sophisticated, big, you know, with, with people that work for them, they have offices. Um, but not every country is uh, the same. Some of them are just starting out, you know, even here to, today, there's a, a new country that's uh, looking into, I think we might have scared him off actually, but hopefully he's here somewhere. Um, but we do need mutually to help those countries. You know, it all starts as a small step and uh, over the years it uh, helps, you know, we, the, 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 both, both sets of those organisations really help. If I do have some time, <laughs> I want to stress the, the role of education in all the ways, I would say. We have to educate ourselves as doctors about the disease. We have to help uh, carriers especially, but also patients to be able to take care of, them, of themselves by education of the signs and symptoms. And again, at least in Spain, in this field, we have a lot of work to do because I think in France they, they have worked more about in this that it's really important and, and it, it, it saves time for the diagnosis and it saves suffering, I would say. And we have to educate our, our authorities in which points are important and which things uh, we have to work more. So I would say that for me, the education that is the clear one, <laughs> it is really, really important. The having a, a collaborative approach uh, is quite useful and we developed uh, together with a uh, patient um, advocate representative and several healthcare professionals representing different uh, professional um, approaches. Uh, we have developed uh, an holistic uh, approach uh, to care, recommendation on holistic approach to care that was recently published in the BMJ Open. And uh, I think this was really a great experience. And uh, I think we have to plan some research activities together. This was extremely important uh, to gather all the different uh, perspectives. And we hope that these recommendations that are only the first step may be useful to uh, increase awareness of the disease and also potential access to uh, improved uh, care and multidisciplinary care in particular. So maybe this can be useful also to apply for uh, recognition of some uh, additional uh, support uh, for patients uh, in uh, local uh, regions. Of course, much has to be done. It was interesting in this uh, um, work, we then submitted this recommendation to an international panel or more than 200 patient advocates and uh, physicians and caregivers to get their opinion. And uh, uh, also we asked about the feasibility. And of course, many centers, many patients did not yet reach an holistic approach to the care. But uh, uh, the idea that this can be implemented uh, is something very reassuring. So we hope this first document can be a first step to move forward in this respect. So, uh, again, I think working together has been a very rewarding experience. Uh, I'm sorry we were very uh, long in the discussion, but we have five minutes for comments. So we will be happy to take your comments, please. I'm really grateful for the doctors to be here. And I can see that there is so much goodwill 
on your side to really improve the situation. But if we look into reality, I mean, there's not even a single doctor from Austria here. And when I think about my situation at home, then this is, is there, is there an Austrian here? Is there an Austrian doctor here? Oh, no. So, <laughs> um, if I think about the situation at home, I have to say that especially these doctors who are not present here and who are not thinking the way you think, they think they know everything about it. And even if we say, uh, we think it would be very important, for example, to have genotyping, they say it's not necessary. So they don't know that it, it should be done. So what my wish to you would be that as doctors, you direct yourself also to, say, the representatives of doctors in other countries and tell them about what you have been finding out and maybe they transport that to the doctors who are um, the so-called experts of amyloidosis, for example, in Austria. Thank you. Thank you very much for your comment. Yes, I think uh, we can do more, but also recommendation for the medical societies, I think are uh, really slowly maybe, but significantly expanding the uh, awareness, uh, not only of the disease, but on the proper diagnostic approach to the ultimate diagnosis. But your point is quite important and we will make I think also together with the Amyloidosis Alliance, more efforts to involve also colleagues from other countries that are not represented here. Are there other comments? Yes, please. Español, pero ella me va a ayudar con la traducción. Mi nombre es Marta Herrera. My name is Marta Herrera. I'm from Colombia. Yeah. Lucia, can you briefly yeah. translate? <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, she was um, telling us, uh, she was very thank you uh, to everybody for the work that we are doing. But then she was telling us that in Latin America it's really difficult to access to the treatment. And she asked for our help in this way to convince uh, their authorities of their necessity of access to different treatment because nowadays there are only a few countries that they have the treatments available. I think this is mainly the summary, yeah, uh, like Venezuela. So uh, from my point of view, I would say that, yes, we have to do that. <laughs> and uh, again, I think the, the two main points are um, the spare consensus, the guidelines are really important in order to convince the authorities. But on the other hand, patients are really important. I, I think that the strength that the association has is, it is bigger than we think in order to convince the authorities of the necessity. So we have to work in a collaborative way in order to convince the authorities of that this is totally unfair and inequity, that, uh, uh, but it happens. It ha this is the extreme, uh, the extreme case, no access to any treatment. But I think that, for example, in Spain, uh, the access to treatment can be different in different communities. And this, again, it, it, it is unfair. So we have to convince in this disease and in other diseases to our authorities that it's really important that the access to treatment has to be uh, equal for all the patients and all the countries. Yeah. yeah. And we do have to do it together.
So uh, I, I think we have time for one more comment if you want. Dr. Then we have to finish. Uh, sorry, Dr. Obici, just really quickly. I just wanted to say um, yeah. in defense for the clinicians in this room, first and foremost, thank you so much for the passion that you've shown towards the patients. Um, coming from New Zealand, I've been in advocacy for three years. And initially, I um, fell into this trap where I felt that the clinicians were not doing enough, that they didn't care. But um, quite to the contrary, as far as New Zealand is concerned, a lot of clinicians and GP general practitioners, they do care. The issue is that they don't have the time and there's not enough resources for them. So um, picking up to what you said, uh, Dr. Bichi, about wanting to look more into this, uh, I would like to see how can you in this room be able to extend your knowledge onto countries like New Zealand where we don't have enough um, resources for the clinicians. Yeah, thank you. That's a very good point. Thank you for raising that because, yes, uh, particularly from the European perspective, uh, sometimes we just do not realize how heterogeneous uh, is uh, the access to treatment uh, awareness and so on. Yes, I think we can work together within uh, also the International Society of Amyloidosis. I will bring this message and also with the Amyloidosis Alliance to try to be more inclusive uh, and uh, in a way stimulating other regions to, to participate. I, I cannot imagine what happens in other regions like uh, Africa, for example, or, so, yes, I, I think this is a major, a major uh, impact. And I think the pharma companies are largely represented here. We've seen that in the beginning and probably we need uh, more cooperation also with them to for a better deal for uh, getting access for treatments. I mean, it's a tough point. Uh, we don't have time to address it, but I think we also have to be uh, brave and uh, work on that. So thank you very much again for your attention, for your participation. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.